So, with Halloween coming up, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, my kids' costumes, right? Because what do they want to be? And, and it's fun to ask little kids what, what they want to be for Halloween. And this is not a hard and fast rule, but certainly most of the little boys I talk to want to dress up as someone strong, somebody more powerful, somebody uh, heroic, super heroic usually. Uh, and the little girls want to be somebody beautiful or beautiful and strong and heroic or superheroic as well. Uh, the common thread just seems to be wanting to be someone more than themselves, somebody uh, more, more powerful or more beautiful than they could possibly imagine, somebody heroic. And in the biblical world, if we were going to dress up as like a biblical hero, who would that be? Uh, well, Hebrews 11 has all kinds of heroes of faith. There was uh, Abel, which we talked about last week. Noah, who we're going to talk about. There's names on there like Abraham and Jacob and Moses. Even a prostitute, Rahab, makes the list. Gideon, Barak, uh, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. All of these men and women uh, of faith or heroes of the faith. If we go beyond that list, we might include the apostles, and especially the Apostle Paul. And then even after the Bible, there's great men and women of faith. There is uh, uh, Athanasius, the, the bishop who w- would save up money at his church, and he would buy slaves off slave ships. Uh, this is in the uh, second and third century. And then he would release them into free lands. Uh, there's Macrina, the sister of Basil the Great, who uh, taught his... Her brothers, um, the ways of faith. There is Catherine of Siena and Ignatius and Teresa of Avila, Luther and Wilberforce and Kurt Carlson, and the list goes on of men and women of faith who changed the world in the name of God, help abolish slavery and create universities and begin hospitals and this council world leaders and bring the good news of Jesus to other people. This list of people of faith throughout history is made up of women and men, people of all cultures, ethnicities, people of all educational backgrounds, to the the very highly educated, to the very simple, young and old, those of questionable moral background, you name it. What do they all have in common? Every hero of faith throughout history has one thing in common. They're all radically obedient to God. That's the common denominator. Not radical obedience to an ideal, or radical obedience to a philosophy, or radical uh, obedience to a government, but radical obedience to God. The word radical in our culture kind of means like, oh, somebody who's out there on their own doing something new, right? Did you know that the original meaning of radical comes from the Latin root for the word radish, like the plant? And what is a radish? It is a root. It is literally a root. So the true meaning of the word radical means radically rooted in something. And these heroes of the faith were radically rooted in the living God. Not in their own strength, not in their own ability, radically rooted in God. This evening, we're going to encounter someone who was radically obedient, and that is Noah. But before we get to Noah, we need to do a little review. Uh, And if you recall, last week we were looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was the stronger, privileged, older brother, probably believed he was the guy who was going to fulfill the promise to Adam and Eve to save the world. He's full of himself. And he presents an offering to the Lord that gets rejected. 
His whole heart wasn't in it. Then his little brother Abel, who is this weaker, underprivileged little guy, he presents an offering to the Lord out of his heart. And his offering is accepted. Well, we know what happened. Cain kills his brother and is cast out of the land. Cain's descendants, though, still receive some grace from God. They're still able to procreate and still able to to have lives. And so they become this line of powerful, um, artistic people. They create metalsmithing and music and all kinds of things. They are trying to be gods in their own strength. They're not relying on God. Well, Adam and Eve have another son after Abel is killed, and his name is Seth. And Seth means foundation. And Seth has a son named Enosh. And Enosh, as we looked at last week, means weakness. And it's from this line that God would, uh, through those generations, would bear the one, uh, the promise keeper, who would fulfill the prophecy to Adam and Eve to crush the head of the serpent to to actually save the entire creation. And he would found this promise on a foundation of weakness. Foundation of weakness. So, that leaves us with chapter 5. And you're probably wondering why I'm skipping over it. Chapter 5 is fascinating. It makes a great class kind of makes a horrible sermon. It's just a bunch of, and he lived to a thousand years, and then that person lived to this person and had this person. So here, let me just sum up chapter 5 for you. Chapter 5 gets us to Noah. (laughs) It's it's, it's a list. It's it's saying that there's thousands of years that have gone by, and it kind of gives you the family names as they go. And, and we get to Noah, the promise of salvation. The very end of chapter 5, verse 29, tells us about this man named Lamech. And Lamech has a son, and he names his son Noah. And Noah means rest. Noah means rest. And in the context of all this story, we, Noah's name means rest from the curse of the ground. Rest from the curse of the ground. Noah would become a pivotal character in God's salvation story. Now, Noah's place in God's story lasts three solid chapters. Okay, so what we're going to do is break up this Noah flood story into two weeks. And even that's being a a little bit overzealous as I got to preparing. What we're going to do is just look at uh, Genesis 6 verse 1 through seven sixteen, And I'm not even going to read it all, but I am going to read uh, it in bits and pieces. So if you want to stand it, you can try and follow along with me, but maybe just let it wash over you for the first time. One of the dangerous things about these familiar stories like Noah, which is kind of a kid story, right? Or we think it is, um, is it becomes really familiar. So why don't you stand so you don't fall asleep, and, um, and I'll, I'll get to reading this story. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good, or beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." Now, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the records of the generations of Noah. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them on the earth. And then comes the part where God tells Noah, I want you to build this gigantic boat. And he gives him all the dimensions. And he says, I want you to get two of every animal, and of the clean kinds, I want you to get seven. And now we're going to pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive in the face of the earth. For after seven more days I'm going to send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. I'm skipping to verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of the sons with them, entered the ark. And they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, and all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded it. And the Lord closed the door behind them. Father, this is uh, an amazing account. It's hard to even know where to begin and what to do with it. We pray for your wisdom and your spirit to guide us. As we listen for your voice, Lord, reveal yourself to us in what you're calling us to do. Amen. You may be seated. So seriously, I mean, this is an amazing story. Talking about these Nephilim people that are like giants, floods, and evil, and destruction, and this weird boat that they call an ark, and... How do you even enter into this? How do we even begin to read this? Well, I think we've learned a lot as we've been exploring Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the things that we've seen is that Genesis, in in this beginning part, is is not a, a modern scientific document. It's not a modern history, although it contains science and contains history within it. We just need to be careful that we don't expect too much of the text. Most importantly, I think, when we approach Genesis and the flood story, we need to understand why this story, why was this story recorded in the first place? What is the author trying to tell us about God and our place in his story? So, 
The story is here to show us that despite human rebellion, God continues to be faithful to His plan to save creation through His promise to Adam and Eve. The story is here to show us that despite human rebellion, God continues to be faithful to His plan to save creation through His promise to Adam and Eve. I don't expect you to memorize that. Let's set the scene. The beginning of chapter 6, there's this weird comment about sons of God and daughters of men, and they're having children that ended up being these things called Nephilim. And most people think these Nephilim are giants or beings of superior stature. There's only one other place in the Old Testament that has that word Nephilim. And if you remember the story, it's when Moses sends these spies into the promised land before they go there. Joshua and, and, and his buddies. And they, they go there and they spy out the land and they come back and they say, there's these Nephilim in the land, these giants, and they make us look like grasshoppers. So these Nephilim are, are some kind of beings of... of Superior physical strength and stature. Um, maybe Goliath was one of them, you know, some, some big giant. So, anyway, so that's where we're at there. Now, who are these sons of God and daughters of men? And I tell you what, scholars are divided over what this actually means. Some say they're disobedient angels, like demons. And people use the argument, well, the New Testament says that angels and demons don't get married. Okay, but that doesn't mean... They can't, like, have sex. So that's one theory that people have. Another theory that people have is that the Israelites were often called sons of God. So maybe the sons of God are the people from the line of Seth, who were his promise keepers, and the daughters of men were daughters born to the line of Cain. And they were not maybe supposed to get together, but they got together and bad things happened. Right? That's another major theory. Stronger evidence shows that kings of old were also called sons of God. And Meredith Klein, a scholar, um, says that maybe these kings were demon-possessed and took these daughters of men, and from them came this line of Nephilim. It all sounds spectacular. It all sounds plausible. Mystery continues to surround what actually happened here. So what, what I want to do for us is give us kind of those three major things. I don't think if you believed any one of those things, you'd be off your rocker. It could all happen. But what is the meaning of this? What is going on here? Why is this important to the story of the flood? I think the most important point of these sons of God and daughters of men getting together is that whatever's going on, they are breaching a boundary established by God. They're breaching a boundary established by God. They're trying to make themselves gods instead of obeying the living God. In fact, there's a clue in how this is written. You remember when Eve uh, was in the garden and tempted by the, uh, by the serpent, she saw that the fruit was what? Was good. And then she took it and ate it and gave it to her husband. Here, these sons of God saw that the women were beautiful. Literally, tov in Hebrew, good. These sons of, men, uh, of God saw that the women were good and they took them. It's the same exact structure as what Eve did in the garden. And that tips us off to them bre breaking barriers established by God. So, God shortens these people's lifespan to 120 years. 
This is another weird thing, right? Because it doesn't take a Bible scholar to read a few chapters later that people are living a lot longer than 120 years. Now, what's going on here? Does the Bible contradict itself? I have a really hard time with the Bible contradicting itself because even people who are not Jewish or or Christian see Genesis as one of the crowning achievements of human literature of all time. Whoever wrote Genesis is no idiot and definitely would not want to put contradictions in their own book. So what's going on here? Again, I submit a couple theories to you for you to decide. One is that this curse of 120 days lifespan is implemented over time. So as you read ahead past the story, people do start living shorter and shorter and shorter until you get to, you know, later on around Moses, nobody's living past 120. So there's one theory. Another theory, and this one's pretty good, is that maybe it was 120 days from the time this was said until the flood came. Maybe this 120-day life limit was for the people that he's talking about in this first part of Genesis 6. I submit those to you. Again, I'm not sure that that's the main part or the main uh, point of the story. The main point of the story is that the earth had been corrupted. Listen to this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, that that's all of humanity, was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. I mean, that is getting your point across, right? Evil all the time. That's quite a statement. Now, there's no word in our English language that translates the Hebrew word for heart very well. The heart in Hebrew thought was the center of a person's thoughts and feelings and motives their will and motivation. In our kind of Western specialized world, we have specialists for everything, don't we? You go to the gym to get your body worked out. You go to the therapist to get your emotions worked out. You go to the, the pastor or some other spiritual leader to get your spiritual side worked on, right? There's all these different specialists that we go to. In Hebrew thought, people didn't have a soul. You are a soul. You can't separate all these things out. And so that Hebrew word for heart means your whole being. And so what this is saying is that the whole person here is bent toward evil all the time. That's the situation of the world in this text. And the story actually matches what we saw in Genesis 1, only in reverse. Remember Genesis 1, God would create things, he would check it out, and God saw what he created, and he said it was good. Well, here is is the opposite. God saw the situation on the world, and he was sorry that he made it. A few verses later, the narrator writes, Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Filled with violence. Literally, uh, the, the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. You heard that word before, right? Hamas. It's a terrorist group in Palestine. That's where that word means. It means violence. And violence isn't just physical brutality. Violence means oppressing those who are weaker than you. It does mean physical violence, but it also means taking advantage of people. What it comes down to is nobody was loving their neighbor as themselves. God's intent for humanity was to be the crown of his creation. Humans were to live in a loving and trusting relationship with God, their life giver. We were created to bear his image, to reflect his good character to each other. 
into the creation. And here in this story, people have totally rebelled, totally corrupted the earth. And so how does God react? Is he angry? Does he send down lightning bolts? No. The scriptures tell us first that God, the creator, was grieved. He was grieved. He was sad in his heart for what had become. And you've got to understand, I know that, especially those of us who are younger, we were raised with God as Abba Father, who loves us, and this is so true, but you have to understand that, that our gener- for our generation, that is a luxury. That that is actually a, a fairly new way of thinking. And in this time that this was written, to think of God actually being grieved over his people, over his creation, was revolutionary. You see, in the ancient Near East, there were more than one account of a major flood. In fact, there were three accounts that are older than the Genesis one. You may have read it in high school literature or college literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Anyone read that way back when? Okay, Uh, that's the Babylonian account of the flood. And the reason I bring this up to you is because I know some of you are in university or maybe you're in high school or maybe you watch a lot of History Channel and there's a lot of groups out there that will look at these other accounts of the flood and they'll say, you know, the biblical account is just a myth and it's just based off of these older accounts. I just want to give you um, a different side of the story. I think that there's a lot of different flood stories because there was actually an event in history that was a flood. And if you think of it this way, you've got all these different people groups coming out of Adam and Eve. The, the line of Cain created these different cultures that were not followers of the living God, Yahweh. They created other gods and other systems of religion. And so the flood happened to them, but then they had different ways of explaining the flood. Now, this is really interesting. All the other accounts of the flood, except for Genesis, portrays the gods, multiple gods, always being just like people. Petty, vindictive, not very smart, fearful. In fact, in the Babylonian story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods decide to flood the earth because people were too noisy. It's like... We were trying to pray out there, and the kids were running around. It's like, ah, let's just kill them. They're too noisy. Wouldn't that be just ridiculous? So this is the kind of like, religion that, that Genesis is, is kind of birthed out of. In great contrast, the biblical story shows one true God who loves his creation and is grieved over the fact that it's gone corrupt. It's out of grief and out of mercy that he will not allow this continued downward spiral of hate and abuse to the created order any longer. Romans 1 speaks uh, of people worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And so here people have tried to usurp God, tried to be God instead of obey God. And so what happens is, God gives them up to their desires. Without God controlling things and setting up boundaries, the world would slip into chaos. And so God, in this story, gives people what their actions say they want. The waters of chaos. Life without God's hand to intervene. And, yet again... We see the promise to Adam and Eve 
about Eve's offspring being the salvation of the world, that promise is in jeopardy. Is God going to give up on His promise? It would seem so. Except for one very small and very important line. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, the one man in the story called righteous and blameless. Was Noah perfect? No. But Noah was a new kind of man. In a world filled with people who were set against God, Noah walked with God. He listened. He worshipped. He obeyed. Noah had a faith that God's way was better than the ways of society, than the ways of his culture. Noah accepts the fact that he is not God, and he respects that he and others are made in God's image. So the living God sees Noah and makes a covenant with him. He makes a promise. And God tells Noah about his plan to, to build, to flood everything. He tells Noah to build an ark. Literally, an ark is a chest or a box. There's only one other place it's used in, in, in the Bible. And you know what it is? It's, it's Moses' basket. You remember when Moses was born? He was supposed to be killed by the Egyptians. So his mom makes an ark, a basket of reeds, and puts tar around it. And where does she put him? In the water. And he floats and is rescued. And then he delivers the Israelites. Interesting that Noah is to build an ark to go inside into the waters. He emerges and from his line will eventually come the Christ. But, oh man, I'm getting ahead of myself. I can't help talking about Jesus, you know. So, I want you to consider this charge to Noah. You live in the middle of the desert, Palestine. Let's say uh, maybe you live in Moses Lake, Phoenix, all right? And God tells you to build a boat, all right? You've hardly ever seen rain. In the wintertime, you get flash floods, but most of the year, you're praying for rain because your crops are drying up. Now God tells you to build not only just a boat to save yourself and your family, but a 400-foot boat that's 75 feet wide and three stories tall. My guess, if you're living in Phoenix or Palestine or Moses Lake, in that day you weren't really a shipwright or a shipbuilder, so you got that against you. Then you've got to get massive amounts of lumber and tar and building materials. You're going to need to give up your life savings for this. Oh, and then this is not some small boat that you can just hide in your backyard and build a fence. And when people come by and say, hey, what are you doing? I'm nothing. Just a little hobby. You're building a massive structure in the middle of the desert where there is no water. So you're going to receive ridicule. It's going to take you decades of physical, financial, emotional, and relational investment. And I'm using that word investment as a euphemism. What I mean is pain. Especially if you heard wrong from God. What if you got that mixed up? It was supposed to be a 45-foot boat, not a 450. Oops. 
Oh, and then there's the animals, two of every kind, seven pairs of those who are clean so that you could have sacrifices when the thing's all over. Plus, you've got to get food for all those animals. And, well, we're going to deal with the specifics of the animals next week. But think of the preparation that Noah has got to do here. And he's only got his three sons, so there's four men and their wives, four women, to do all of this. That's a bit of what Noah did. That's radical obedience. Radical obedience. The Lord made a promise on his end, and Noah responded in faith. You ever think of what happens if Noah doesn't obey? What happens to humanity or the whole created order? I don't know. Just put it out there. I do know this. That our obedience, or lack thereof, affects much more than our personal lives. It affects much more than even our own species. Romans 8 talks about all of creation longing, basically for us to get our act together, for us to be radically obedient to Jesus, for the new kingdom to come. Creation salvation is wrapped up in our salvation Throughout history, the emphasis on what God does, or, I'm sorry, throughout the story, the emphasis on, is on what God does, not on what Noah does. In the other flood stories, the hero is the Noah figure, and that, what happens is the gods want to destroy all of humanity, but there's always in these stories one guy who defies the gods and builds a boat, and he gets some other people involved, and they, they escape fates, basically, to the, and they make the gods mad. Well, here, God is the one who chooses Noah and his family. God is the one who makes provisions for Noah. God is the one who closes Noah into the ark. And all the other stories, that the heroes shut the door themselves. It's a real distinct part of those stories that uh, the main character closes the door and saves himself. But in this story, it's God who saves. God who closes the door. In the biblical flood story, God is the hero. Now... Noah is unlike any man in his day. But he's just a man. Thousands of years later, Jesus would enter the scene. Jesus is a better Noah because he is perfect in every way. He too would enter the chaos of death. He would be shut up in an ark of a tomb. And he would be raised from the dead to new life a new kind of living. Jesus defeated death once and for all, and through Him, we can find new life. He calls us to trust Him, to radically obey. And the root of our trust is His obedience and His sacrifice. And what I've been mulling with this week, and what I want to ask you to consider is, what does radical obedience look like for you today? I can't answer that question for you. What areas of life may Jesus be calling you to? A new attitude, maybe? A new outlook of hope? A new level of generosity 
with your commitments or your finances, deeper love for your spouse or deeper love for your kids or deeper love for your friends, deeper love for the stranger you encounter or that really annoying coworker. What does radical obedience to Jesus look like? Maybe you don't even know. Maybe radical obedience would be taking the step of just spending some time in prayer so that you can hear what Jesus might be saying. Maybe radical obedience for you is spending more time in His Word or in community with other believers so that you can help hear and discern what God is saying together. Maybe radical obedience for you is trusting Jesus for the first time. Whatever it is, the only way to find new life is by giving up our desire to be God in order to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your commitment, for your faithfulness to us, for giving your life for us when we weren't looking, and we certainly don't deserve it. And even after we may have heard about it, we continue to struggle with rebellion. Lord, we hear about these heroes of faith like Noah. Maybe we've even, we've even tasted radical obedience in our own lives. Lord, we know We know in our minds and maybe in the memories of our heart that being on the edge of faith, of trusting you alone, is the most exciting place to be. It's the only way to live. But Lord, we confess that the lure of false comforts, self-preservation, and the idolatry that we are somehow our own masters creeps in. So Lord, we pray that you would show us the next step for what it means for each of us to radically obey you, to follow you, to experience and taste new life day after day. We thank you for your forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. And by your grace, we seek to follow you and trust you. Amen.